Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Polyamory is a hot topic. If you look at Google search trends over the last decade or so, you'll see that searches for polyamory are on a steady upward climb, along with terms related to several other forms of consensual non-monogamy. We're also hearing more about polyamory in the popular media, from front-page news coverage to reality dating and other TV shows. People want to know more, and many are curious about trying something other than monogamy in their own lives. However, this is something that most people have to figure out all on their own. So what do you need to know? Let's talk about it. My guest today is a leading expert on consensual non-monogamy, and we're going to explore what her own personal relationship journey looked like, as well as lessons she's learned from several years of working as a therapist and treating clients who are in the process of opening up their relationships. We're going to discuss the benefits and challenges of opening up, as well as tips for making polyamorous and other relationships work. I am joined by Jessica Fern, a psychotherapist, certified clinical trauma professional, and author of the book Polysecure, Attachment, Trauma, and Non-Monogamy. She is also the author of the all-new Polysecure workbook. In her international private practice, Jessica works with individuals, couples, and people in multiple partner relationships who no longer want to be limited by their reactive patterns, cultural conditioning, insecure attachment styles, and past traumas, helping them to embody new possibilities in life and love. This is going to be a very practical and informative conversation. So stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. If you're looking to level up your sex life, check out Beducated, the Netflix for better sex. Their online courses can help you to increase your sexual knowledge and skills. They can also help you to cultivate more satisfying relationships. They have courses for everything, including those who are interested in exploring the world of consensual non-monogamy. For example, they have classes on how to navigate threesomes, as well as how to open up a relationship. The content is amazing, and there's a lot to learn from these courses. Try them all today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Miller, as the coupon code. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy! If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting Sex Science. Hi, Jessica, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you, Justin. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited to speak with you. And I'd like to start our conversation with where your book, Polysecure, begins, which is with your own personal and professional journey. You're a therapist who used to work with individuals, and then you expanded to couples, and you started encountering a lot of questions from clients about exploring polyamory, but were kind of at a loss for how to help because you didn't really have any professional training in it, and there weren't a lot of resources available. And that is an unfortunately all-too-common story that I hear from other therapists. 
Yeah. But one of your clients mentioned that they were reading the book Sex at Dawn, which led you to read it, and it resulted in this personal awakening. And I love that book. And I've actually interviewed one of the authors, Chris Ryan, before. He was even gracious enough to visit one of my classes at Harvard where I had assigned his book a few years back and he did a Q&A with my students that was fantastic. But anyway, I could talk about Sex and Dawn endlessly. But <laughs> yes. how did that book change you personally? What was the new perspective that it gave you on non-monogamy? I think what it did was it gave me permission. It gave me permission to admit my own fantasies and desires And it really gave me permission to be like, oh, this is who I am. And I had experiences with it before. And I then could look back and like rewrite my whole relationship history. And now it all made sense in a different context. But it gave me permission to start actually living it consciously, intentionally, and openly. (laughs) And I think that's an experience that a lot of people had reading that book and some of these other books because it gives them a different idea for what relationships could be. Because I think most of us kind of grow up learning that relationships have to fit into this narrow mold and that everybody wants or is supposed to be in a monogamous, long-term marriage, lifelong marriage with just one other person. Can you tell me a little bit about sort of what your experiences were like growing up in terms of what you learned, the messages that you learned about romantic relationships versus kind of how that has evolved and transitioned over time. Yeah. I learned a lot of mixed messages <laughs> about relationships. Um, I mean, cause both of my parents have been married several times. So there was this emphasis on marriage and yet clearly marriage was not working. So I think I learned a lot of the obvious traditional messages that a relationship is supposed to be monogamous, or at least women are supposed to be monogamous. Like men have non-monogamous desires, right? But women only have monogamous desires. And then that's sort of the goal. But that wasn't really what I saw in the people around me growing up, you know, and I was lucky to grow up sort of in on-off Broadway theater. So I grew up a lot in sort of queer communities as a very young child. So I saw a lot of different things. And even my own exploration, like I was able to identify my non-straightness or bisexuality, you know, at 14 years old, which was great. However, you know, and had many different kinds of explorations, but eventually, you know, at 29, it was about, it was eventually getting married, you know, and we're exclusive. Yeah. And I think that that's what a lot of people take home from their experiences is that, you know, you can have this period of exploration, but eventually everybody's got the same end goal that they're striving toward. Yeah. Now, at one point you were in a monogamous marriage, but you and your partner agreed to transition to polyamory. And this is something that I know a lot of people in long-term relationships are thinking about doing. And in fact, one of the most common questions I get from readers and listeners is how to open up their own relationship without blowing it up. And it's not that they want to replace their monogamous partner, but they don't necessarily want to be limited to just one sexual and romantic relationship forever. So let's talk about the good, bad, and ugly of making a relationship transition. And I want to start with the good. So what are some of the ways that opening up changed your relationship for the better? Yeah, great question. So it just felt like we were living more honestly, like it created this deeper intimacy you know, to be able to talk about our excitements about other people, our interests, even just general sexual or relationship desires that we just never talked about, 
right? So it really sort of rose the intimacy level or deepened the intimacy level. And it does, it feels amazing. It was a kind of support, you know, like to go on dates and to be able to process it with your spouse, (laughs) like to come home and, you know, and know each other so well and even like support each other through challenges that were coming up in other relationships. It was really beautiful. Yeah. And us each having the support from other partners took a whole lot of pressure off of each other. My first husband has a pretty severe autoimmune condition and it was in a very bad place then. And I was very much in the caretaker role. And when he had a partner who was able to like show up for him one day, I was just like, oh, wow. Like I don't have to be the only one carrying this burden. Yeah. And I like everything that you just said and appreciate you for sharing it. And I think that this idea about kind of having radical honesty is definitely one of the benefits because in a lot of long-term monogamous relationships, people feel like there's a lot that they have to hide from Mm -hmm. their partner because they're afraid of what their partner would say. And that includes attractions that they might have to other people, even though they're not necessarily acting on those attractions, but just vocalizing and saying that in a lot of relationships can be threatening. And so in this way of opening up and kind of normalizing these types of conversations and discussions, it can really help you to get to know your partner in a way that you otherwise wouldn't and develop this really deep level of intimacy. Yeah, exactly. And everyone's getting to know themselves differently too, you know, like with new experiences, with new partners, it's like, oh, I didn't even know this about myself. And so to share that with someone is beautiful. So as a therapist who has worked with clients who have opened up their relationships, are there any other benefits you've seen or success stories that you can share when it comes to people who have wanted to open up and have started along that journey? Yeah, I think people become a lot more accepting of the partner that they opened up with. Because when you're not, there's this inherent tension, sometimes invisible tension in monogamy, where you're like, well, I know no one human can meet all of my needs, but I've contracted that you're the one person that will meet all my needs. Like this is a, this is a setup that doesn't really, you know, balance out mathematically. So There's something that really a lot of people like feel this relief, like, oh, I can just let my partner be who they are, you know, and they find that they're not as like nitpicky about the small stuff. And it's really the small stuff that gets us (laughs) in our relationships. Yeah, the death by a thousand paper cuts, right? I know there's like an article that's been going around, like my wife divorced me because I didn't, you know, undo the dishwasher. (laughs) It was like, you know, so I think that's really common. And then there's other things like just as relationships are open and there's more long-term committed partners entering the picture, like there's more money, there's more finances, there's more support, you know, there's more childcare, all of those kind of things sort of can be really amazing. There's more other extended family and the metamor relationship. I'll add that into, so not a romantic relationship with someone else, but your partner's partner. And it's a special, unique kind of relationship to share a partner with somebody. And it's a kind of intimacy that's hard to describe. I'm sure it's something that a lot of people have a very hard time imagining, you know, just the idea of opening up their relationship for some people is intimidating. But then this idea that you might have a relationship with your partner's partner and how does that dynamic work? It's just a totally unexplored area for a lot of people. Yeah. I remember the first time it was my metamor and 
she texted me a picture of our shared partner and was like, he looks so cute right now. I wanted you to see. And I was like, blown away. (laughs) Like, this is awesome. And it, you know, it went far beyond that. But just that kind of rapport with someone is unheard of typically. So there are a lot of potential benefits that can come along with opening up a relationship. And one of the other key ones that we see in the research is that it provides opportunities for diversified need fulfillment and the opportunity to explore different aspects of the self. Because when you're in a long-term monogamous relationship, oftentimes people will have different interests, different hobbies. And we're not necessarily talking about something sexual here. It could just be maybe you like tennis and your partner doesn't. And sometimes when people have those mismatches or discrepancies, then they have to put aside things that they're passionate about and really enjoy doing in life because they can't share it with their partner. So one of the benefits for a lot of people of having these sexually and romantically open relationships is that they can pursue those hobbies and passions with someone else so they don't have to give up that aspect of the self. So I think that can be another really important benefit or draw for a lot of people. It is, yeah. Or I have a partner now that has completely in, like interest in hobbies I've never even heard of. And so I'm just getting introduced to new things I think I never even would have known I liked. And that has me thinking about the concept of self-expansion theory in social psychology, which is this idea that we need to continually grow and expand the self over time. And part of the way that we do that is through having relationships with other people because they're showing us different sides of ourselves and helping us to learn about the world. And so that can be another way that these relationships sort of tap into a deeper need that we might have. So let's talk about the flip side of things. Yes, there are all kinds of benefits that can happen when people transition into consensual non-monogamy, but there can also be a lot of challenges and some heartache that can happen as well. So can you tell us about any of the challenges that you maybe encountered in your own personal journey there? Yeah. So personal journey, we encountered a lot of them. So so my first husband really had some significant attachment meltdowns you know, is is what we would both refer to them as now. And he thought he was a securely attached person. He came from very like secure functioning parents, still married to this day, but didn't realize how much monogamy was a stand-in for that secure attachment. And so suddenly here we are non-monogamous and he's having all this anxious attachment that he never had to deal with before. So it was like panic attacks, tantrums basically, right? So that was hard for both of us, as you can imagine. So that's one is there can be this new attachment rupture that happens or people have to face certain insecurities that they didn't have to face because they were married or monogamous. And now sort of as there's competition in air quotes, right? Right? Or just there are, there's other people that your partner's looking at. You realize, oh, I have to look at my self-worth and my self-esteem and like where I get my inner sense of value from. So there's a lot of that deep inner work that can be very difficult to have to face. Yeah. So it's totally new terrain. Totally new terrain. One of the phrases I use that will be in my next book is uh, justice jealousy. This is really common for partners that have been married. So in our case, there were certain things I had been asking for relationally for years and just he wasn't able to give. And so I love him. He's amazing in all these other ways. I come to this just acceptance. That's just not who he is. And then we open up 
<laughs> now he's doing those things for other people. <laughs> it's like, hell no. <laughs> like, wait, <laughs> you know, it feels like this injustice has happened. And it it's not just me being jealous of, oh, I don't want you to do that for someone else. I'm like, I'm happy for you to do that. But for you to be capable now, to suddenly have a skill set that literally didn't exist in our relationship, like, it's, I mean, I'm laughing, but it, it was so deeply painful. And this is very common is that people realize they open up and they have new partners that are treating them really well and a new relationship energy and putting their best foot forward. And you realize, oh, we've kind of been neglecting each other, sort of taking each other for granted for a long time. And that can be really painful to face. And so now you're having to date new people and you realize, oh, we have to up our game too. <laughs> we have to reinvent our relationship basically. Yeah. And I think everything you just said is probably going to resonate with a lot of people because you're going to see your partner as a different person because they're having relationships with other people. Yeah. And that's going to change them in terms of how they're interacting with you. And I think there's this choice that needs to be made when you start a relationship with somebody else and they're treating you really well or in a different way than your partner does. One way to look at that is that you really need to up your game with your other partner in order to bring those relationships to the same level. But some people might be tempted to look at it as a comparison. And then, you know, that can be the kind of thing that leads to the end of the relationship. So it's all about having that right mindset. And I think you really have to be committed to that core relationship before you expand and bring in other partners. Yeah. And that's what's hard is we're so excited about the new people and we want to create our new relationships with them. And then the pre-existing relationship like needs all of this extra attention, more attention than it needed before. So it can be overwhelming. Yeah. And I think something else that's related to that is that we know when people start new relationships, you tend to experience a lot of passion for that other person. And that can be this overwhelming, intense feeling. And let's say you were in a monogamous relationship for many years and that passion you kind of hadn't felt in a really long time, mm -hmm. having that suddenly come back, which is what you and many others describe as new relationship energy is something that can be very overpowering. And, you know, how do you manage and deal with that? We're not taught how to do that. Most of us don't have a lot of previous experience with it. So it's tricky. Exactly. Right. We only know it in the context usually of one relationship. So you're like, great, just you're obsessed with the person and it works, right? <laughs> We're at each other's house every night. But how do you manage other relationships in the mix of that? It's a lot. Yeah. And when you're in the throes of passion and you have that intense preoccupation, like you can't think about anything else, anyone else other than, you know, that partner, that's where it starts to be a little bit tricky, but you have to find ways to manage that and recognize that passion is fleeting. New relationship energy is temporary. Mm -hmm. You have to kind of give your partner some grace during that period of time, but they also have to be able to come down from the clouds and have a reality check and make sure that everybody's needs are, are being met. Right. Still being available to their other partners. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm guessing, you know, in terms of you as a therapist working with clients who are polyamorous and in open relationships, you've seen a lot of other issues come up. And I'm sure that jealousy is one of them that sometimes happens because maybe they didn't anticipate these feelings emerging in the first place. And I've talked about this on the show before that 
sometimes people think they're not the jealous type, but they don't realize it until they get into a situation that starts to trigger jealousy. So is that something that you tend to see in your practice? Yeah, I definitely see it. My take on jealousy is a little different, right? Or I sort of see jealousy not as a bad thing. I see it as a messenger, like it's trying to tell you something important. And I'll use the little rhyme, you know, it has something to do with me, we, or society. And those like looking at the roots of jealousy, you know, so is it like I already said, is it more about me and my insecurities, right? Or my insecurity, my shame is coming up, all of that. But a lot of times the jealousy that people are calling jealousy is more of this, it's in the we, like this is a relationship issue. It is sort of this justice jealousy, this relationship neglect, or your partner's making promises and they're not following through, you know, or your partner is totally prioritizing people over you. And that feels horrible. (laughs) That's not jealousy. So it's more usually that, you know, we think of jealousy as the society part is more the dominant narratives around possessiveness, what it means to be a partner, a lover, a man, a woman, like all of those narratives can go very deep into us. But rarely is it just that pure possessiveness. It's usually versions of insecurity and also like I'm not getting my needs met in the way I really need to. Yeah, I love that perspective. And it's a different way of thinking about jealousy that maybe some of the things that we're labeling as jealousy, maybe they're not really jealousy and they're about something else. Exactly, exactly. Like in my book, I talk about primal attachment panic, right? And people are actually having a panic reaction because their attachment figure is gone and their body is saying, when you're apart from your attachment figure, you will die like we would have as an infant. And people are just getting labeled as, oh, you're being too jealous. And it's like, that's not what's going on at all. (laughs) Yep. Now, a question I'm often asked is whether if you have the right tool or skill set, can that allow anyone to practice polyamory or consensual non-monogamy? So is this something that anyone can do if they kind of know the right way to approach it? And if not, what are some of the signs or indicators that non-monogamy might not be right for you? I have seen that people that have a higher skill set, they fare better. It doesn't mean it's easy, though. I don't want to, you know, make it appear that it's easy, but usually they can navigate, they have more skill and tools to navigate the hardships with. But I definitely don't think non-monogamy is for everybody in the way I would never say monogamy is for everybody. And so, you know, when people, they just know, I just don't want more than one partner. Like it has no interest to me whatsoever, right? It's like some people have that real clarity and firmness. It's like, okay, yeah, this isn't for you. Why would we try to make it for you? (laughs) A lot of times though, what I like to explore with people therapeutically is, well, what parts of you are not wanting to do non-monogamy? So we do internal family systems work, right? Because we might have several parts that are like, screaming in protest and resistance to non-monogamy. And when you actually work through them, the self, you know, adult self can go, oh, I actually am willing to try this, at least try it, you know, and see how it goes. Yeah. And I'm 
totally of the same mind as you that different relationship styles work for different people. You know, I'm not an advocate for monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. What I'm an advocate for is finding the type of relationship that is right for you, that's going to work with where you are and what you want at this point in your life. And it's possible that that might change over time. It's possible it might not, but that's the thing. It's your own personal relationship journey. And I don't think it's for anybody else to say what kind of relationship you should be in. And I think that that's where we get into trouble is when we try to pressure ourselves into having the kind of relationship we think we're supposed to have rather than the kind of relationship we actually want to have. Exactly. And it's extremely hard when the partner we've been with is the one telling us that, right? Or they now want a relationship style that we really don't think we can do or we have no interest in. But even myself, it's like, even my soul feels so polyamorous, but at times I've been exclusive, you know, <laughs> like the the different styles of non-monogamy that I've been practicing have changed through the years just because of the external circumstances that have been in my life. You know, and as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about how a lot of people characterize polyamory and consensual non-monogamy as a relationship orientation. And it's similar to a sexual orientation in the sense that it can be fluid and you might change your identity and your behaviors and practices at different points in time because our needs are shifting. So relationship orientations can definitely be fluid. And that's a great example because for some people, it doesn't feel fluid at all, right? They have sort of people on either end of the spectrum that are like, I'm absolutely like same-sex partners. I absolutely like opposite-sex partners. There's not much room. And then there's a lot of people in between where there is fluidity. So I do see the same thing with non-monogamy is you're going to have people on either extreme or either end of the spectrum, I should say. And, And, you know, for them, it does feel like an orientation. That's how they describe it. And then there's a ton of spectrum in the middle and and gray nuance. There is always a big spectrum and a lot of nuance when we're talking about sex and relationships. Yeah. Now, something else that you talk about in your work is this concept of vessels, which I really like. And that's basically the temporary relationship container that you construct as you explore your journey to non-monogamy. And the idea here is essentially that there are many different entry points or ways of doing consensual non-monogamy or polyamory. So the process doesn't have to look the same every time in every relationship. So can you give us a couple of examples of some different vessels that people might create when they're totally new to this or when one partner just isn't maybe as comfortable with it as the other? Yeah, so some of the vessels can be people saying, okay, here's the things that I'm willing, like I can step into much easier, right? And give more of my enthusiastic consent to, right? And maybe that's playing with partners or dating together or sexual experiences together, or maybe that's not appealing at all. <laughs> and, and we can, you know, go have some separate experiences. So first coming up sort of with that list and working out the nuance of how do you incorporate that, you know, and move forward with that. And then sort of staging like, okay, we're going to do this, let's say for three months and see how it goes. And if it's going well, then we're going to add a few new things you know, that are going to stretch me, but not break me, right? Or stretch the relationship, but not break the relationship. We have to be careful in that one because we can obviously put new people in our life into a very awkward position. And we don't want to put too many rules and regulations on those people and what they're allowed to do. But if you really feel okay with it, these kind of vessels can help. Sometimes 
I've done this one where it's like, okay, polyfidelity time. (laughs) Like all partners will stay as they are and those relationships can grow, but we're not adding any new partners right now. It's just too much, you know? And sometimes that's a personal choice. Like I'm going to not add a new, new partners or me in this one relationship. Usually it's funny enough, not my like marriage, but it's the newer relationship. Like we need to stabilize, you know? Um, and then we'll actually open up, right? So you can have vessels within certain, you know, groupings of people and maybe not with others. And just further highlights how, you know, there's a lot of complex dynamics at play exactly. here. Exactly. And you got to customize this and make it work for you. And again, it's this idea that you might have different agreements, different vessels with different partners. And so, you know, this can look extraordinarily different across different people who are in polyamorous relationships. Yeah. And the thing that I just see doesn't work with vessels is when you're agreeing to do something for your partner that you really don't want to do. Yep. Like your partner saying no oral sex. And that's like the last thing you actually want to agree with. (laughs) No oral sex with others. I mean, right. Yep. Yeah. Now, I know you're a specialist in attachment theory as it applies to consensual non-monogamy, and we're going to explore that in depth in a separate conversation. So let me close with one more question, which is this. Aside from the importance of working through attachment-related issues, what are some of your other big tips or considerations that you think are really important for people to think about if they're just starting down this path of exploring consensual non-monogamy? Yeah, codependency and enmeshment and how differentiated you are, how autonomous you are, especially when you're coming from a relationship that's been together for a while. My next book, it's an entire chapter on this. It feels like a pretty significant topic. You know, in monogamy, we're encouraged in many ways to be codependent. It's romanticized to complete each other, to be half of a whole, to be my better half, all of those things. And, you know, to have the ussies and all my profiles are of us and all of that, right? The identity is of the couple. And it's very difficult to have a couple identity with one person and try to create new relationships that are meaningful with other people, right? Where, for yourself, right? Because then often people in that situation, they feel this protest, almost the adolescent rebellion comes up like, ah, I just want to feel free to like do what I want to do with my time, you know, and not feel like I have to ask permission all the time just to like do certain things, but then also to be able to create something new with somebody else. So that's a big one to look at the big overt ways that you might be very enmeshed and codependent with a partner, but even these like really subtle ways that don't allow room for new people. Yeah, I think that's all great advice and I appreciate you sharing it. So thank you again so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Mm-hmm.